DCM works. Yeah, if honestly, if I could meet girls exclusively through 480p, I would get way more dates. It was probably a song that reminded me of it, or I'd done an Arnold's What's a Nigga voice. Writing is definitely an isolating thing. From an yeah. outside perspective, that's weird as It makes fun. us look really um, mental. But that is because of what it kind of said about art. I did. I, that had fun in bits. There were fun bits. We went, and, we went and bought a value pack of stretch. Oh my god, cool. we did. There is a big lesson here to learn about storytelling. Hey guys, welcome back to the Alpha Artist Podcast, official podcast of Digital and Creative Media Works. My name is David, DCM Creative Director, Lead Writer, and I'm joined as always by my co-host Ben. Hello. And today by friend of the show and special guest, Gabe. Hello. <laughs> I mean, what? You laughed like you were expecting more. Who's Gabe? Yeah. I hear the audience ask. They, they know. Uh, but if you don't know, Gabe, what's what's your... Give us your your, your one minute. Who are you? What do you One do? minute? Wow. That's one minute. That's, that's a pretty generous. extensive amount of time to to pitch myself. Yeah. Um, yeah, look, basically I'm on... You restarted um, your timer, by the way. Oh, no, that's cool. I can keep it brief. Um, <laughs> I'm on Movie Maintenance. Sandspans Pants Radio's yep. Movie Maintenance. Um... Mm-hmm. We fix bad movies sometimes, but most of the time we just kind of pitch fan fiction-y sequels. Um, and that's more or less the sum of it. That's probably, if you're listening to this, probably where you know me from. Or I, I assume that there is a large-ish demographic of people that have come and they've seen the, the Boone Shepherd interviews that we've oh, done well, and they've yeah. seen that content as well. Potentially um, that too. Gabe is, a, yeah, Gabe is a published author. You can grab his book. The links will be in the show notes for all that promotional bizzo. If you want to go down there, you can grab it. Uh, we love it. There's a whole you, episode where we talk for like two hours about. I think do you, have, do you have an audio book on Audible yet? No, it's on iTunes. Yeah, it? it's on iTunes. It's not on Audible. I don't know. Ask Zaman oh. about that. I don't know how that works. Yeah, <laughs> if, but if you can, it's free on iTunes. The whole thing's yeah. out. Yeah, now, actually, right? that's it's that's completely... the thing. Like nobody's. Yeah. I sort of like. I sort of kind of like brought it up with the publisher and Zaman. I was like, okay, so the whole thing's out on iTunes now, and like people can just kind of have it for free. And then they were like, oh, you should probably do something about that. And nothing's been done about it. So at the time of recording, um, the whole book's available for free on iTunes. So take advantage. So what, get in get in yeah, on it. What you're saying is download it all, delete <laughs> yeah. your iTunes account, and keep it forever. Yeah, basically. Um, free book. I don't get any money out of it, but hey, people read it, so whatever. <laughs> okay, we had some technical difficulties, but we're back. And this week, we are talking about the storytelling of Unfortunate Events, the Netflix TV show. Look away. Look away, look away. The show will wreck your evening, your whole life, and your day. Every single episode is nothing but dismay. So look away, look away, look away. Okay, so you're a big fan, Gabe, and that's why we've got you here. It's not a weird coincidence. We didn't just think that this was like a good week to get you in. So I wanted to just start off with your general. Your your general thoughts on the show uh, as far as like how good it was as, a, as an adaptation and what you thought of it as a whole because we loved it. Oh my god! Um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Look, I um, it, it's a really funny thing because like a series of unfortunate events, it's one of those series that I read it as a kid and I loved it very very dearly as a kid, and I kind of found that as I got older, unlike Harry Potter, which I sort of like left in my childhood a bit. Unfortunate Events was one that my appreciation for only grew and grew because the more I thought about it in retrospect, the more I realized just how extremely clever and extremely layered it actually is. And then, I mean, that was kind of bolstered by the release of the prequel series, All the Wrong Questions, which has just kind of 2015, I think the last book came out, four books set 30 years before Unfortunate Events. Um, and rich, it's per- probably the perfect prequel in that like it enriches Unfortunate Events while kind of doing its own thing as well. So... When the TV series came along, like, I think 
my love for the series had never kind of faded into nostalgia. I'd always still loved it the same way. And when it was announced, I was crazily excited. When the first trailers came out, I was crazily excited. And then I was lucky enough to get screeners for the first four episodes about a month before they came out to review them for Den of Geek. And when I watched that first episode, you know, the whole first episode, it's it plays out quite similarly to how the movie did. Like, it's a fairly faithful adaptation, yeah, give or take a few little tweaks here and there. Almost like beat for um, beat dialogue as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Some of the dialogue's exactly the same as the book. And it didn't It didn't hurt that um, right before I watched those first four episodes, I reread the first two books, like, in an afternoon. Because you can read them in an hour. They're so short. And so the books were kind of fresh in my head when I watched those first four episodes. And then I, I went on and I reread the whole rest of the series before I watched the rest of uh, the episodes when they came out. But it was the bit at the end of the first episode when Lemony Snicket gives his little monologue about you know, uh, trouble and strife can cover this world like flames from a suspicious fire. And when that happens, all good, true and decent people know that it's time to volunteer. And of course, anyone who's read the books knows that that refers to VFD, the volunteer fire department, the whole overarching conspiracy that very much characterizes the second half of the series. And the moment he said that, and it cut to like all the different names of all the different characters sort of on the walls around the secret passageways that VFD kind of has under the city. It was like, it was very similar to the moment at the end of the. I'm gonna I'm gonna mention Hannibal and everyone's gonna laugh, but like I'm <laughs> just gonna throw it out there very just very quickly, just by point of comparison. Uh-huh. Very similar to how I felt at the end of the first season of Hannibal, where it did something very similar that was like a very a very sort of loving, I guess, hand outstretched to the fandom that said in a very clear, very obvious way, if you have read and love this source material, this is for you because the people making this have read and love it as well and are going to treat it with the respect that the movie didn't give it. I find that... And I really felt that, like, to the point where I got goosebumps at the end of that first episode and I thought, shit, this is perfect. And the rest of the series, there were so many moments throughout those eight episodes where I actually kind of squealed and jumped up and down in my seat a bit. And because it wasn't like that kind of Rogue One style of fan service where it's like, let's throw as many, like, clumsy Easter eggs in here that literally serve no purpose other than being like, hey, look, here's that thing that's also from that film that you liked and guess what here it is again do you recognize it are you, oh good for you are you specifically so, referencing that moment in force awakens where john boyer's character pulls out the you know the like little laser droid that uh, Luke look, used to train with like that fucking that kind that of wasn't, thing that wasn't nearly as incongruous as in rogue one with the um with the two guys from tatooine when they run into them on the planet oh, and they yeah. kind of walk past them and run into them i'm like the, this is literally bar. three days before a new hope starts why are these two like tatooine bums on this planet and then they're in tatooine like a few days later drunk in a bar how does that that's that's fan service to the point where it becomes not only distracting mm. but makes you question elements of the story which it should never do yeah like if you're gonna do fan service it should actually strengthen the narrative in a way that works which is a kind of i, I appreciate it's a fine line to walk but i think unfortunate events did it extremely well just in the way it set things up without being distracting without being overbearing without being annoying little things like olaf mentioning this the sugar bowl in the second episode light lemony speech at the end of the first episode um and like a lot of like you know the little photos and newspaper clippings and bits and pieces lemony mentions throughout the series um i just thought it was you know it wasn't like most adaptations it wasn't really how i guess i'd envisioned the books but it was a very loving, very true to the spirit of the source material adaptation that I got a hell of a lot out of. And isn't that really um, what and you I, want? I, like, cause I, absolutely. I think the, the concern with a lot of adaptations, and we've talked about this many times, we talked about it with Willy Wonka as well, where it's like, really what you, what you don't want from an adaptation is a literal translation into film. Because books, some books, if they're not written by screenwriters, don't translate well. 
Absolutely. And there is no dumber argument. Sorry, there's no dumber criticism in the history of dumb criticisms than, but that's not what it was like in the book. Because a book is a book and a movie is a movie and a TV show is a TV show. And different mediums have different demands. And I think the cleverest thing this TV show did, because the conspiracy stuff doesn't come into the books until the very end of the fifth book. And then it sort of slowly gets unfurled. Whereas a TV show brought the VFD conspiracy stuff in sort of from the very first episode. Yeah, it's laden which, throughout. Yeah, and for serialized television, that's a much more savvy way to go than just every two episodes is a rinse, repeat, reset. The Baudelaire's go to a new kooky guardian in a new kooky location. Count Olaf turns up in a new kooky disguise. Misfortune befalls said guardian. The Baudelaire's manage to get away by the skin of their teeth. Repeat, next episode. And th- there was an element of that, but by bringing in the conspiracy stuff earlier and giving an overarching sense of there are things that have to be uncovered and secrets that have to be revealed, it gave it a sense of narrative momentum that the early books definitely don't have. And I think that's which because, was a really clever update. You know, that was a very retrospective move. Like from from a yes. narrative perspective, it was definitely like about book four or five. You know, it was like, oh shit, I need something more. I I, I need oh, to laden can... within, and you can tell that it's very much post seated. Oh. You know. And the, oh, absolutely. The, the retconning is so glaring when you reread the series. It's things like, you know, the tattoo of Olaf, the tattoo of the eye on Olaf's ankle, which in the, um, in the books, like the early books, there are photos of it and it's just an eye. And then like in the later books, it suddenly is the VFD insignia. Yeah. It kind of you're sort of thinking, <laughs> yeah. And you're like, if this was, if this was actually meant and intended from the start, those early illustrations would have been that insignia. But And there's so many different things that just, like... And suddenly, like, retrospectively, the later books kind of imply that Josephine and Uncle Monty and and Sir and all these characters were somehow involved in VFD when there was absolutely no hint of that whatsoever. Whereas a TV series can actually set it up earlier. And I think... To me, it really feels like when you're when you're writing a story and you finish the first draft, and often a first draft is very much kind of a, I guess, a process of discovering the story and discovering what it's all about, and you discover new things as you go. Whereas... In a second draft, you sort of know what the story is and you can go back and you can set things up and you can make it all feel more cohesive. And I'm not in any way saying that the books are a first draft because I love the books, but it definitely feels like a sort of retroactive correction of those elements of the books that didn't quite gel. For the body and the very work, obvious, yeah. yeah, and the very obvious sense in the books that this was not planned from the start. See, for I, mean, us, I really like the way it un- organically unfolds, but seeding it earlier is by no means a bad thing. And I, th- I, th- I think, as you say, like it gives it the narrative momentum that it kind of, like it gives you the punch through but you know you and i have both read them but ben i haven't read any of the books so from from some of that's it was yeah it was a really interesting thing because the only experience i had with the series was the film and the film really doesn't have much in terms of that sort of conspiracy theory it has elements of it sort of towards the end because yeah, i ended it, up it very clumsily hints at it yeah, but it doesn't do much with i ended it. up rewatching the film after finishing the series just because i was curious how about was that it. uh it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. There are elements of the film I actually prefer, and well, there are elements like, of the film that I think they just do differently. Um, look, curiously, I mean, just very quickly, because I'm really, really curious to hear what you thought about, I guess, what you thought about the TV show as somebody who was coming in cold, I suppose. Yeah. But, like, to me, I always quite liked the film, because it sort of was the only, I guess, unfortunate events adaptation I had. But after watching those first four episodes, I remember having this moment where I thought about the film, and I was like, huh. It's not a film that I mind, but I don't think I'm ever going to watch it again because I have an overall better adaptation that is a lot truer to the things that I love about the books. Yeah, the, so the film is I don't definitely know, I, I think, the film's definitely useless after the series. Um, yeah, absolutely. It, it treads the exact same ground. Like like we said, there's there are literally line for line 
similarities between the film but, and the uh, series but it just it the pacing of it is just so much faster that they there's just no, there's not yeah, much, the, there's not as much substance to it really the show has a lot more room to kind of explore yeah. and extrapolate on things and that the the film um sort of condensed i guess yeah and with the whole conspiracy thing and the the series it's it's the kind of thing where because i have no idea what the volunteer fire department is so i guess thanks for that spoiler um <laughs> even watching it's, but it doesn't mean anything to you yet, no that's right? the thing it even yeah, even yeah. watching yeah. the series you you have this idea of like oh there's something going on because he has the spyglass which is you know the symbol that is everywhere in the well, half a spyglass well yeah but you yeah half the spyglass but he has you know he has that symbol and you're like you, you keep seeing that symbol in places and you're thinking it's gotta be something and they ended on that yeah they ended on such a sort of almost kind of a cliffhangery note where you you have an idea throughout the series that like oh there's definitely something more especially with the um the inclusion of the parents as actual characters which caught me off guard because again i've only seen the film and the parents are dead in the film well implied dead you don't really know but in this they they introduce them so early on that you're like oh the parents are fine but and did, then they kind of just pull and tug you around with them for a while in the later episodes. And so did you think, See, I, did you think that those parents are the Bodle? Like, do you I think, still have no idea. <laughs> so, yeah, so do you know, like, from the show? Because Gabe and I know the way that... Well, I guess like, you guys know, yeah. But, but for you, if someone hasn't seen it, obviously, like, we don't want to spoil the whole series, but for someone who hasn't seen it or read the books... Did you get a sense, like, do you, th- are they... If I, was you- gonna, if I was going to put a shot in the dark, I would say, yes, they probably are the parents. Only... Wait, hang on, but... So you've seen the whole show, right? I've seen yeah. up to the end, yeah. Yeah, we've we've seen. Okay, the whole cool. Show. So 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 I know that. So you've seen. I know they are technically parents of other kids, but part of me yeah, is yeah. thinking, like, part of me is like, that can't be it. Um, but again, oh uh, look, um, it's okay. I'm just gonna like this, this isn't really a spoiler. It's just <laughs> no, um, go for it. Because it look it's because the the, the Quagmire triplets who are the kids of those two parents, yeah, they're really really major characters in the series going forwards. Yeah, well, from- this was one thing I'm I'm interested you said that because this is one thing I was really curious about because I was sitting there watching it and when it was revealed that they were the Quagmire parents, I was like, oh cool, like to a fan of the books, that's really cool because I know that that's setting up for what happens later on with the Quagmire parents and their relationship with the Baudelaire's, uh, sorry, yeah. the Quagmire triplets and how that goes forwards. But I was thinking. To somebody who wasn't familiar with the books, you'd probably watch that, and if was it wasn't the Baudelaire, if you realize it yeah. wasn't the Baudelaire parents, you'd probably just sit there and think, "Wait, why did I spend so much time following those yeah. characters who had nothing to do with the main plot?" No, I definitely um, felt that. Unless they've done a huge change, I'm ninety nine percent sure there's no way they'll be the Baudelaire parents. No, I'm... only because the Quagmires are so significant in the series going yeah, forward. Yeah, I guess. I guess the biggest hint is the fact that at the end you have two of what I assume are the other kids. At the same school, yeah, that yeah. So by the end, you're like, oh, I guess they're like the additional characters, you know, the other characters in the series for the later, um, the later. Yeah, stories. particularly in the in the arc at the school, yeah. they're going to be very significant. Yeah, like, um, so out of curiosity, uh, the conspiracy stuff aside, coming in fresh, did you find, I guess, the structure of it with every two episodes was sort of obviously a a restart because books, every two episodes yeah. were a different book. Did you find that repetitive or tedious or tiresome at all? I guess. Because a lot of people say that about the books, the early books. I liked it because I've because I've known of the sort of general way the story works from the film, so I knew it was this idea of I knew of the three, the first three sort of situations: the yeah the, from the movie, the marriage, quote unquote, the the reptile room, and the the house. I forget the name of it. Um, so I, I known of those three situations. I didn't know of the the logging one, but yeah, I 
by sort of by like the fourth episode third episode really i'd sort of realized oh they're doing that like this is sort of how they're structuring it especially with the whole part one part two i liked it because it wasn't sort of it wasn't like i was talking about this with david it wasn't like sherlock where they didn't just take one of the books and make an hour and a half long thing about it and then go that's your one episode have four episodes yeah Yeah. Um, and they they made some really savvy changes, particularly to what, like, one of the, the big one I really liked was that in the books when, you know, they finish up with Aunt Josephine and then the next book just starts with Mr. Poe dropping them off at the mill, whereas the show changed it so that the Baudelaire's actually go to the mill of their own volition and run away from Mr. Poe, yeah. which I really liked because it made it less repetitive. It made it kind of, it made the, the Baudelaire's feel like they had a lot more agency, like they were actually trying to seek something themselves instead of literally just being dumped on the door of the next yeah i think if they had done them being dropped off by mr pie would have been like oh come on (laughs) yeah i think it's such an important move for them at that point because then it's the first time in the show that their suffering is effectively self-inflicted i know it's not because they have no other option but it's the first time that they go from being a victim of their story to a perpetrator of the unfortunate events that before yeah and i think that's so important Particularly given what Particularly I know about the, the school, yeah. like it, I, I don't know. I think that adds so much more flavor and variety to. And those also characters. because, like, a lot of the a lot of the arc of the books is like in the because I found when I reread the books because when I was a kid, you know, I was reading them a lot further apart. When I reread them before the show, I sort of binge read them. Like I was going through like one a day, if not more. And when I got to the fourth one, that was the one where I was like, oh, it's. Just, and a lot of people I know say they get, gave, give up around the fourth one because it's just kind of one too many. Yeah. It's like, okay, another shit guardian, another <laughs> grim location. And the fifth one kind of represents the change because the boarding school environment's a bit different. And also you get the quagmires. So they're actually, they actually have other people to talk to who are just as decent as them. Mm. And also the fifth one is when the VFD stuff actually comes in. So the fifth one's kind of the first major turning point. But like the first three, you know, they're different enough flavors to kind of keep you interested. Then the fourth one is kind of like, okay, again. So I think it was a really savvy choice to have them kind of seizing control there and I guess grabbing their own destiny, even if it fell through. Because that kind of is where the books go a lot later on. Like when you get to like book seven or eight, when it kind of really breaks formula and it stops just being guardian after guardian after guardian and becomes a lot more serialized, the Baudelaire's are making a lot more choices for themselves. And a lot of those choices aren't the right choices. And so they end up, particularly in like the last three or four books, there are a lot of moments where the Baudelaire's make some really questionable choices. And the book calls attention to them. I mean, there are and literally lot, conversations you, about morality and whether it was the oh, right yeah, thing to and, do. And we don't want to spoil those, a lot obviously, of, but, you know. No, no, but there's there's a lot of, like, are we actually any better than Count Olaf? Because he thinks he's doing what he's doing for good reasons. So do we. We think we're doing what we're doing for good reasons. And other people are looking at us, at us and saying, you're criminals because of this. And it's it gets very, very, like... I mean, because I, I, um, I saw Daniel Handler talk at a event in melbourne a couple of years ago and he had this really fascinating story where he was talking about um no i mean first and foremost he showed us a clip from an old hitchcock film mm-hmm. and in the film it was like you know bad guy and good guy facing off bad guy's got the gun aimed at the good guy and um basically the bad guy's about to shoot the good guy when the bad guy's child runs in between them and the good guy's immediately like oh okay, hey, kid, we're going for a piggyback, and picks up the child, holds her in the way of the gun, and the child's, like, giggling, thinking she's going for a piggyback, (laughs) and he uses the child as a human shield to get out of there. And Daniel Handler said that, like, as a kid, this was kind of how he felt about the world, where he felt like he was just a pawn in the stories of adults where he was being used for various things and that he could never quite understand because they're all so strange and didn't seem to come together, didn't seem to make sense, and that he always, for that reason, resented 
children's stories that had contrived happy endings where everybody got what they deserved. Because he was like, look, the people who bullied you and the people who wronged you, most of the time, they will just go on in their lives and never think about you again, yeah. and they'll just be fine. And they'll because it's probably wrong. become prime minister. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, or, you know, more pertinently, president. But, like, no. it's, it's, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's wrong to kind of, you know, to teach kids that that's the way the world well, works it's when it's not. Yeah. Exactly. It's, and it's an also, lie. And morality isn't black and white. And there's so much of that in Unfortunate Events, particularly in the second half of the series, where... And, and the, the, the TV show alluded to that really nicely when, um, when Charles in the final episode says, I have to go and find Sir. One day you'll understand things aren't so black and white. And that's yeah. a really nice foreshadowing of the more morally ambiguous territory the series will stray into towards the back end. Especially planting those seeds. I mean, and, you know, I, as we've said, one of the biggest struggles with the books was that a lot of the, you know, as a writer, something that you do when, when you're planning, a, if you're going to serialize a story, your first and foremost goal is to tell a good contained story, but at the same time, you plant enough seeds that if you're going to write a sequel, you can write one that works. And something the show Absolutely. did well is it said to itself, we've got this limited space to tell a story, so what we're going to do instead of what, and I'll talk about Sherlock again in a minute, as much as the S-word bothers me, <laughs> something that Unfortunate Events did incredibly well is they said to themselves, we have these... Is it, it's eight episodes, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so they eight episodes. They were like, we're going to tell a discrete, solid narrative in eight episodes that works, but we're going to plant these seeds for the next season if we get it. But, you know, we're going to focus on telling a good story by itself. And that's something that a lot of TV shows don't do because good, you know, in inverted commas, good TV shows now, their job is to get renewed. And the way you get renewed is people demanding more. And Sherlock is a great example of this where their mentality to the end of every season is no longer, how do we wrap up, you know, season one, two, and to an extent, you know, the start of three, was how do we make these well-contained narratives within each episode with a with an overarching plot that is satisfactory in that season that ends. Season two did that very well, and by season three, they were like, fuck, we need to do that, but also plant these aggressive seeds that will mean that people want to come back next season. So instead of telling a contained narrative that worked, what they ended up doing was telling semi-contained narratives with these weird like dovetails in the middle of all of it for like future episodes so that people would demand more so they get renewed instead of what you should do which is tell a good story plant some subtle seeds and then watch your show actually become you know well that's that's why i still kind of say to this day that the reason my favorite star wars film is a new hope is because a new hope is the only star wars film that is a contained, complete, satisfying story where if there wasn't a sequel, if there wasn't another one and that was it, it'd be fine. Yeah. Because you still would have got a story with a beginning, middle, and an end that wrapped up in a satisfactory way where it says, yeah, there could be more, there could be more adventures, but if there aren't any, that's fine. You're not going to feel robbed. And that's kind of, I think, a mistake that a lot of franchise filmmaking and TV shows as well fall into nowadays where there's this almost arrogant assumption that we'll get a second one. And so they leave these huge glaring questions and these huge unresolved plot threads at the expense of their own story. It's, it's ultimately kind of like, you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul, where they take things away from their own narrative to sustain future future narrative threads that they might not even get to tell, you know? It's fucking mental, because basically, <laughs> like, I mean, it's baffling, because if you turned up to an editor and you were like, here's my manuscript and what we're doing, and, like, I don't know how this works in Hollywood anymore, but basically what you're doing is you're turning up with a piece of paper that says, what we're going to do is we're going to make a pretty average show, maybe subpar, with the expectation that we can make another one after it that's going to be maybe slightly better because we had a good 
because we had a subpar one before it. Like, it's mental. And it's, it's, I think that's why I loved Unfortunate Events. It's because as much as it's miserable to watch, and as much as there is so much unhappiness, I think it's so enjoy. Like, I enjoyed it so much because every episode ended and I was like, good. If I stopped now, I would be relatively satisfied that I had an okay time and I was entertained and it told a good story because that episode was well structured. Maybe it had a cliffhanger. But every episode has a resolution of some kind, even if it's not yes. like the story is fixed and everyone is happy. There is a resolution for the narrative structure of that episode, well, and that's hard to do. Every every second episode has a, has a good ending uh, to a degree. I mean, I think <laughs> I think of, I, like there's still well, obvious uh, cliffhangers uh, when you're halfway through, sort of. But the cliffhanger doesn't the change box. the narrative structure of that. But episode. also, no. even even so, I mean, like I can you know, there's a big problem, particularly with streaming television nowadays, where like. You know, the thing is, like, in TV, particularly traditional TV, the idea was that, you know, you have your three-act structure for every episode, and particularly back in the days before streaming, before DVD box sets, when people might not have seen every episode, you'll notice that <coughs> TV was a lot more episodic. Every episode kind of felt like its own sort of story, which may or may not have, like, one... Like, sitcoms do this all the time, where there's essentially a reset button that gets hit at the end of every episode. Procedurals are the same, and now that we're getting into kind of the more streaming age where people like binging, we sort of are in a weird state where shows like game of thrones and house of cards have sort of lost the craft of individual episodes because every episode kind of just sort of bleeds into the next one and so like you know watching an individual episode of game of thrones or house of cards can be really unsatisfying because there's no resolution whereas something that mad men did extremely well was that even though there was an overarching plot and breaking bad was the same every episode still had a clear objective a clear plot and a clear sort of resolution of sorts, even if there was a cliffhanger. And unfortunate events, I noticed that as well, because it's not just like, they're not like chapters in a book. It's like the first episode is, this is how the Baudelaire's deal with Count Olaf. The second episode is, this is how the Baudelaire's deal with Count Olaf trying to marry Violet. Because the marriage plot isn't brought up at all in the first episode. Third episode is, this is how the Baudelaire's acclimate to living with Uncle Monty. Fourth episode, this is how the Baudelaire's deal with Uncle Monty's murder. And, and so you see what I mean? Yeah. Like, even though the episodes are sort of, in theory, they're kind of two parts of a whole, because every two episodes uh, is an adaptation of another book, the episodes still have a clear beginning, middle, end, a clear three-act structure, a clear resolution, which isn't necessarily hampered by the cliffhanger. I mean, obviously you want to watch more, but there is an objective in each episode which is to some degree resolved by the end of the episode. It's the um... Because for the, whole, for the whole first episode of Unfortunate Events, the whole first episode, even right up until the point where they're making the pasta puttanesca for Olaf, the, Bo- the Baudelaire's are saying, maybe we can make this work. Maybe we can make this work. Maybe we can make this work. And it's only at the end of the episode where Klaus says to Violet, this is not better than nothing, that they realize we have to get out of here. Because the whole first episode, their intention isn't, we're going to get out of here. Their intention is, we have to make this work because this is our lot in life now. And it's not until Olaf hits Klaus, which is obviously the climactic part of the episode. And by the way, was so much more fucked and disturbing than the movie ever oh, was. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, the that movie... Was, that was a big thing. The, the movie, well, they just gloss over it like it's nothing. But in yeah, the fir- in same the with series, the marriage plot. Yeah. Like, when, when he hits... And, and with Aunt Josephine's death, like, when he hits Klaus in the movie immediately he hits him and Jim Carrey just goes, you all saw it, the child fell. And when he marries, when he, when he, um, when he tries to marry Violet, he's got this whole bit where he's like, you're going to have to do my dishes and clip my thick toenails and wash my yellow underwear. And Hey, marriage is no picnic. Isn't this funny? I'm marrying a 14 year old. Whereas, whereas in the TV show, you've got that awful, horrible bit where Klaus is like to, Klaus is like to, um, to Olaf, don't touch her. And Olaf is like, 
I'll touch whatever I want and literally grabs Violet and pulls her to him. Like the threat of Olaf in the movie was so toned down. Whereas the threat in the TV show is so clearly evident where you're watching it and saying as funny and as good as Neil Patrick Harris is, this is a bad man who, when he turns up every time I had a sinking feeling when Jim Carrey turned up in the movie, I was like, what kooky thing is he going to do this time? That's a big difference in the film is that the, the Count Olaf in the film is basically just Jim Carrey being Jim Carrey. And he's a buffoon. Yeah. Like, there's, it, and, you it's know, the even difference between when... Jared Leto's Joker and Heath Ledger's. Yeah, mm. except one of those is bad, right? I think, I, I actually do like Jim Carrey's um, Olaf in, this, in, the, in the setting of the film, where him Look, slapping, I... uh, what's his name, Klaus, Klaus yeah. doesn't matter. You know, where stuff like that is just like, it's just washed over. If they put Neil Patrick Harris into the film, it would be weird. And if they put yeah, like, uh, Jim Carrey into I think the I was series, surprised it would be just as By good. MPH. Um, only because, like, because it's Neil Patrick Harris and he's obviously very funny and he's, like, a famous comedic actor, I think I thought Olaf was going to be a lot funnier. And when I watched the first episode, <laughs> I was always... <laughs> unfortunate. Like, well, but, but that's it. Like, you know, I was... Cause maybe because I'd own, the only on-screen depiction of Olaf I'd seen before was Jim Carrey. Yeah. And Olaf does get... Olaf in the first book isn't funny at all. He's just horrible. Whereas as the series goes on, Olaf gets more heightened and gets more ridiculous, even while that menace is still there. Whereas like Neil Patrick Harris had a lot of like really funny lines. Like my, my, one of my favorite lines in the show is when he's like the Baudelaire's, oh, I hope I can be the father you never had. And they're like, we have a father. Well, we had a father. And he's like, yes, and a mother. Remarkable woman. <laughs> Flammable. And it's just like, so oh, that's fucking horrible. Yeah. It's so good. It's so, um, it's, yeah, it's so pointed. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Yeah, it's and, and even like the bit where he throws Josephine to the leeches, which in the movie he just left her on a boat. Yeah. Whereas in the book, like he throws her into the he, he pushes out throws her to the leeches, and it was the same in the show. It's fucking horrible. The leeches are awful, terrifying creatures. And he literally throws a woman to them to be eaten alive. That's in a children's TV series. Yeah, it's in, it's, it's yeah, yeah, but I mean, but I don't think I don't that- think this are. Uh the netflix series is a children's series anymore i think it's, I, I think that's why it works so well right? yeah it's but, a weird but that's of... the thing though there's nothing in the series that is any darker than anything that was in the books and the books were children's books but, it's but it's I, it's I just think that it's a it's a i think tonal... that's a medium thing yeah it's it's a me- a, yeah a, there are a lot of but also i, I don't know like look at uh, the, the fact is like what i think characterize unfortunate events across both tv series and um book series is the fact that it's just this complete willingness to not talk down to kids to say yeah the world is dark and scary and horrible and the thing is kids can handle a lot more than any of us than than we tend to assume they can i mean kids grew up reading like for hundreds of years kids have grown up reading grim fairy tales watching things like the dark crystal which is really unsettling watching indiana jones films which can particularly in like temple of doom get really really scary like kids can handle darkness and unfortunately there is actually anything in the series that is particularly like what like i don't know if they give sort of ratings to netflix series it's pg it's pg yeah like it's It's really yeah. not. It's actually not that bad when you think about well, it. Well, we we talked about this game during when we were talking about the Boone Shepherd release, and that you know one. Of, I don't know if it was actually on microphone or not, but we talked a bit about how uh, the having you know a slightly older protagonist in a in a young adult fiction novel is not necessarily what people want, and you know Darius in particular is a really dark character to have in a in a book for younger people. But but you know the yeah. truth is that it works because kids know, like kids aren't stupid. They know that the world is fucking shit they know the world is dark <laughs> they know that bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people and they know when they come into a show like unfortunate events or they read the books they know straight off the bat that 
something bad is going to happen to people because bad things happen and sometimes good things happen, and, you know? And the thing is, like, there are a lot of kids in the world, you know, kids kids who will have tragedy in their lives from an early age, kids who will lose family members, who will have bad things happen to them, and they're sitting there, you know, reading Enid Blyton stories or whatever and thinking, this is not what my life is like. I don't see my life reflected in this at all. I don't get this. This is not how things are. And I think, like, as a kid, stories like that always frustrated me because I was like, well... I don't, I don't buy it. This isn't like, you know, as I had a perfectly fine upbringing, but like, I wasn't always happy and always like, you know, cheerful and chirpy because that's just not, (laughs) exactly. And that's because that's not what life is. I mean, my favorite film when I was a kid and still one of my favorite films as an adult was the Prince of Egypt, which is a children's cartoon in which Mm. thousands of children are murdered by God. (laughs) And it is treated with exactly the amount of weight that something as fucked up, unsettling, and disturbing as that needs. Prince of Egypt is one of the best DreamWorks films. I um, I fell in love with that right after I watched... Prince of Egypt is the... Joseph uh, and the King of Dreams. the animated one, right? I am thinking... Yeah, they're all animated. Right, yeah. Yeah. There was like a series... It was weird. They did a series of like animated Bible stories. It was weird. Yeah, I think I watched some of um some of the Joseph one, and I was like, "This is straight to DVD. This isn't as good as Prince of Egypt." It's weird, like not good singing though. Yeah, it was a weird. That was a weird era of like cartoons and animated stuff. But I think what what we've reached now, like, and I don't know if it's just maybe we're out of touch with the kids. I don't know, but like, I feel like now kids are growing up. They're aware, like they, you know, when we grew up. We, like, the internet was just a thing. Like, no one was familiar with the internet. No one was, like, savvy with the internet. We didn't have a knowledge of the, you know, you, you, you had your knowledge of your sphere of, like, life. You only knew about the stuff that you're involved with and what people told you about. But now kids can, like, learn about anything. You know, 12-year-olds have fucking iPhones. They know about Syria. They know about the bad shit They know who happening. Trump is. They know who Trump is. They know what's happening in America. Like, they know that America's burning from the inside. And it's this weird, <laughs> it's this weird situation now where... You're basically asking kids who no longer have, like, a childhood filter to absorb and take on board these, like, fantastic ideas of, like, happy stories and good endings, you know? And that's what... It it frustrates the fuck out of me. Like, look, I mean, we're here to talk about fortunate events. I don't don't want to talk about my own stuff here, but, like, I had a meeting... Yeah, look, I mean, this this is just by way of example. I had a meeting yesterday with a producer who is interested in optioning Boone Shepherd as a TV series, uh-huh. and I was talking to him about it, and he was like, he goes, yeah, yeah, like, I really love it. It's something I really want to do, but you're going to have to tone down the violence. You're going to have to get rid of the guns. You're going to have to get rid of the death. You're going to have to get rid of all of that. And I'm sitting here thinking, okay, like, one of my biggest influences on Boone Shepherd was Lemony Snicket for the exact reason that it does not talk down to children. It assumes that children can handle things. And that's kind of something that's really important to what I want to do with Boone Shepherd. So I'm sitting there thinking, and, and like, to, to his credit, I said to this guy, I was like, well, like, hang on. I mean, you know, do you, you do realize that's an important part of the series, right? And he goes, no, no. He goes, I do. It's not me. I think kids can handle it. I love Tintin and stuff like that. What? concerns me it's it's, yeah, it's not me saying this it's the producers it's screen australia it's the people who will fund this that's what they assume i think it's a weird which is you know cultural a huge problem almost. with like producers making creative calls but that's not what we're here to talk about today it's just something that frustrates but, me no but I, th- I think it's a weird cultural yeah. thing where like you can have like if you look at like series of unfortunate events and you look at the bad stuff that's in it a lot of it's kind of this i don't really know how to put it a lot of it's not guns is probably the best yeah. way to put it. Yeah. And because there's such this aversion, but, especially now, where, like, if you have a gun, it's bad. But if you have someone getting eaten by leeches, oh, that's fine. Well, it's like, not worse or anything, the, despite it also, being... also, I mean... Yeah. 
worse. <laughs> this guy, the this guy, the really beautiful thing that Netflix is doing is that they're giving creators freedom because, like, the backstory to the unfortunate events TV show's production is that Daniel Handler, who wrote the novels, and Barry Sonnenfeld, who directed the TV series, they were originally the creative team doing the movie, right. and they wanted to do something very faithful and very dark. And the producer said, no, no, no. And eventually both of them got fired <laughs> and they brought in other producers Jesus. and the movie tones down all the darkness of the series. Yeah. And it's the same thing that happened to the Golden Compass adaptation where it toned down Fucking all the bleakness and darkness. so good. The books are incredible. Oh. I mean, the second and really dark, bit, like yeah, but like they're good. Oh, but it's it's a middle oh. chapter. I mean, like uh, yeah. the Golden Compass is another one that's all about the fact. It's all about growing up. It's all about it's all about children learning. But in a world complexity, that is so and learning moral complexity. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. Which is what's so good about it. And mm. this is kind of what's really good about like the era of Netflix, where they they are letting creators tell the stories they want to tell with an obvious lack of interference. Sometimes for better or worse, Jessica Jones. But like <laughs> it, in the in the yeah, I haven't seen Luke Cage. Oh. But like no. in the case of look, I, I said with Luke Cage, if I can, if one person who didn't like Jessica Jones, like really didn't like Jessica Jones yep. and thought that it was as much of an overrated, badly put together piece of shit as oh, I no. thought, if one person yeah. who thinks that tells me Luke Cage oh. is good, I will watch Luke Cage. Am I, and nobody did. Am I? Uh, am I allowed? Am I allowed to? Because I feel like this might be the wrong time and place, but um. I really like Luke Cage. I didn't like. I really didn't like Jessica Jones. I thought it was just okay, overdone. All right. I'll say I liked. You know what? Actually, uh, to preface this, I liked David Tennant and Jessica Jones, but I thought the whole yeah, show was a bit overconflated and it just tried too hard. And the, I mean, some of the scripts, I was like, "What happened? Did you not have a writers' room?" But Luke Cage was dumb and fun and super stylish. Luke Cage is good shit. I haven't seen Jessica Jones, so okay. my that, my that opinion is, no is void. Don't don't watch it on that, but like think <laughs> think about it, you know. Okay, cool. That's Here's look. That's that's the first like that's the first mildly compelling review I've heard of Luke Cage. <laughs> Actually, so that no, might if it, if that doesn't convince you, every episode features a new musical guest who is from the uh, like Brooklyn Queens hip hop scene. Yeah, okay, um, which is amazing. And like no other show has ever done anything like that, where every episode you get a new live performance from a new band or hip hop group within the show that makes sense in the show, and it's fucking awesome. Cool. Yeah, that's myself, uh, Luke Cage, which is not what we're here to talk about. But I just thought it was. <laughs> All right, what, yeah. why, the reason I brought that up is that I think that Luke Cage did something that where it it took the source material and it made it because Luke Cage they were dumb comics. You know, he wore like a tiara for a long time. It was real weird. But what they did is they took the idea of it and they made it into a show that was not only accessible but told the message they wanted it to and did the things they wanted it to and operated in the way that they wanted it to. And the studio wasn't like, you can't do that. They were like, yeah, go for it. Have fun. As long as you don't break the rules of our universe, just do whatever you want. And what we got was a show that was cohesive, fun, and interesting. Whereas, you know, previously, as I think you were saying, and this is the reason I don't like Doctor Who anymore, is that you get to a point where the studios are like, no, we have to get the views to get the funding. We have to get the views to get the funding. And eventually... The shows become, how do we get the most people to watch it? How do we cut together trailers that get the most people to watch it? How do we get the most, like, catchphrases and taglines and explosions? Whereas Unfortunate Events, like, definitely took it back to that place where, you know, like, House MD was a show where every episode was a faithful representation of what they wanted to make. And I feel like Unfortunate Events is a return to that kind of form where you make an episode and a show that is just the vision that, you you know... You go to sleep at night. I imagine this must have been what it was like for them making it. They went to bed every night. They were like, this thing that we're making, I believe in. And I genuinely think well, it, it's going to succeed. It was so clearly... And that, that's why things really... I mean, and look, there's there's an argument to be made that, like, 
full creative control isn't always the best thing in the world. I mean, like George Lucas's wilder creative impulses oh, were God. very, very curtailed in the first Star Wars trilogy. Like he had some crazy ideas for A New Hope that the studio were like, no. And, you know, it turned out to be a really good film. So like there's, there's arguments we made for and against that like too much creative freedom isn't necessarily a good thing. Too much studio control is usually a bad thing. But like, you know, it's, there's no, it's, it's an imperfect science in like what makes a good film or what makes a good TV series. But in the case of unfortunate events, I think what makes it work is the fact that the people making it have an extremely clear creative vision and they're setting out to make something and they made exactly the show they wanted to make. And I would say that at least even if the show doesn't do well and it's like the ratings, I mean, Netflix doesn't release explicit ratings, but apparently Luke Cage was their highest rated show and Unfortunate Events has done better than it. Oh, wow. So that's impressive. It's going to do like it's it will do well. But even if it didn't do well, like at least, you know, Daniel Handler has spent a lot of the last 10 years excusing himself for the movie and like dancing around the fact that he thought the movie was really disappointing. The movie wasn't an accurate depiction of the books while, you know, because he's he's famously extremely polite and like while kind of avoiding saying outright the studio fucked my vision like he's made it very clear that he was unhappy with the movie whereas at least i i would suspect that daniel handler can walk down the street with his head held high and be like no look i made i made a really really good really compelling really cool realization of something you know of of my creative vision for unfortunate events and not only that but i could go back and correct the things that didn't work in the books or the things that perhaps weren't as strong as the later books were when he kind of like got more into the rhythm of it. Because, I mean, you know, the, the series starts out as a dark joke where it's like, oh, there are no happy endings. Watch bad things happen to unfailingly nice kids. <laughs> and then as it goes on, it gets more complex and it gets more interesting and it gets more, you know, uh, narratively daring, I suppose, and all sorts of things. And now he can bring those like more interesting elements, as we said at the start of this, he can bring those more interesting elements from the later books in a lot earlier while still maintaining that central spirit of bad things will happen and you're just going to have to deal with it if you want to watch this show. And for my money, I think it's worked absolutely fantastically. I think it is a resounding success of a TV show. Totally. I think we totally agree. And, you know, one of the things I wanted to touch on is... And, you know, this is something that I've talked about before a lot because I'm a big fan of Edgar Allan Poe and I really like um, Christopher Nolan's films and Jonathan Nolan's writing. And one of the things they they both do very well, uh, the Nolans and Poe, is they both are really good at constructing a narrator that's compelling. So in Poe's case, it might be unreliable. In Nolan's case, you know, you're talking about Memento and that kind of interesting framing device. And one of the things that I think unfortunate events did well and obviously the books did it well in that kind of book thief kind of way where it was like you know book thief was like this omniscient death narrator yeah who was adding this flavor i mean i I adore that book and one of the things that obviously is a big flavor of lemony snicket is lemony snicket and i think the show's treat the, the show's treatment of how do we tell the story through this lens and the way that they produced it was so beautiful like the way that they use those shots and the the kind of I don't know what the expression for it is, or the literary term, but the way that they use, like, the parallel uneven timelines with Snicket telling the story, and then, the, you know, like, the way that they well, treated there's, that. There's, like, a meta-narrative, almost, with Lemony yeah. Snicket going yeah. on, on top of the story that he's telling. But it's never too much. Like, one of the things that a lot of, I mean, books in particular will struggle with is that <laughs> meta-narrative becomes, it's like the Assassin's Creed problem. The biggest problem with the Assassin's Creed franchise is that the meta-narrative is way more important than the main narrative of the story. Whereas this, it felt like there was a big, there was a bit of a push and pull where Lemony Snicket's meta narrative was informing and having like a tug of war with the events well, the, of of the story. 
Yeah, it, it, it complements the main story rather than detracting from it. Yeah. Yes. And it's like, I, th- I think it's really interesting because, you know, in the movie, Jude Law obviously played Lemony Snicket is very much kind of the quiet, reflective writer type, whereas Patrick Warburton played him more like a noir detective. And it's it's interesting because like in the, in the book series, you don't quite realize that Lemony Snicket is actually a character in the series until about the fifth or the sixth <coughs> book. Because up until then, he just kind of seems like the quirky narrator. And then you sort of realize he's actually a character in this universe telling this story as somebody who has experienced at least part of it. And then there's that that bit that still gives me goosebumps in the 12th book where they they meet him. At least you think it's him. It's not made clear that it's him. But And he's described as like, you know, this tall man in an overcoat, smoking a cigarette with a hat kind of shading his face. And he's every inch the noir detective sort of character. And if you read All the Wrong Questions, which is about Lemony Snicket as a 13-year-old boy solving crimes and mysteries. Um, which, by the way, amazing. Like, <laughs> just- oh, I, I love, have you read them? Yeah. Oh, I, I think they're absolutely incredible. I, th- I think in some ways they're better than a series of unfortunate I, events. W- but I would agree, but only if you've read unfortunate events. Yeah, look, they they they're two series complement each other beautifully. But like, I think the difference between them, and I think I think Daniel Handler said this as much that unfortunate events very much is in the tradition of gothic literature, yeah. whereas all the wrong questions is very much in the tradition of noir. Mm. And because again, like you know, the retros- and th- there are a couple of like really really nice little references to. To all the wrong questions in in the um in the TV series because like you know by by presenting Lemony Snicket as sort of a noir detective type character it sort of harkens back to the thirteen year old him from All the Wrong Questions and there's this one little bit that kind of you know got my little geek heart fluttering <laughs> where um where Klaus says where oh, I think it's Violet says to Klaus in the Wide Window episode she's like oh what's that thing Mother used to say like do the scary thing first and get scared later and in All the Wrong Questions that's young Lemony Snicket's mantra. Yep. And when you hear that, you're like, oh. Oh, of course, because Lemony Snicket would have told yep. their mother that. I had like weird goosebumps when that happened. And it's, it was a really, really cool little I, moment. I, I it was just like, but I, and I think the reason that worked is that it didn't like in ever in any other show that would like detract from the moment because it would feel like out of place. Yeah, it didn't. Like, it didn't but whoosh, It didn't whoosh yeah. me as someone who hasn't read the books. I wasn't like, why would they? That makes no sense. Like it was just like, oh, okay, it's, it's just like, something their mother said. Coming back to coming back to, like the Rogue One problem. Like, okay, so if you watch Rogue One and hadn't seen the original oh Star God, Wars films, so which wouldn't work at all because it's it's a complete addendum to them that just doesn't make sense without them because it's just not a good film. But like, if you watched it and like, if you watched it and you saw those two guys from Tatooine on that planet, you'd be like. Why the fuck did that shot hold on them for like an extra five yeah. seconds? And then like when R2D2 and C3PO turn up. I didn't know who those two guys I picked up on who they were, but I was like, I didn't, who cares? I don't, I was I like, I don't give a fuck. I don't give a shit about <laughs> but that's it. It's like, know. why? It was yeah. Like, that's weird. But I mean, that's, yeah. That's not even the most irritating one. Like, I mean, if you watched Rogue One and didn't know anything about Star Wars, you'd be like, who the fuck is this guy in the weird black armor who's like, yeah. why is there heroic <laughs> music playing when he's cutting up all the good guys? So what weird. the fuck is going on yeah. with this? Whereas, like, in this, like, moments like that, little Easter eggs like that, what's so elegant and clever about, I guess, for want of a better phrase, the fan service in Unfortunate Events, is the fact that it it not it, it has the double... It's got that kind of layered sort of double effect of not only being a clear and coherent and fitting part of the narrative, but also on a deeper level being like, oh, by the way, here's a reference to this, which means something else. Because it's not just being like, hey, do you recognize this from this other thing that you like? Like that moment where Violet says the line from all the wrong questions to Klaus, it's like that actually says a lot because not only is it important that moment, but it also implies something about the relationship between Lemony Snicket and Beatrice if you 
have read the prequel series, that, that's a which is of, really, really cool. That's a level of sophistication. I mean, that's like just, that's basic multi-purpose writing. So like one of the big lessons yeah. that, and obviously you'll know this game, but one of the big lessons that you learn early on when you're writing is that scenes have to be multi-purpose. You can't just write a scene to do one thing. It has to try and do at least two things at once to be compelling and to have narrative drive once you have valence shifts. Well, that's and, subtext. Yeah. That's the whole point and of subtext. Exactly. So what you want to do is you want to have those moments where you want, you know, you want to have those lovely drop-in references that fans are going to recognize, but you make them multi-purpose such that new people coming in, so anyone that doesn't know the series or is unfamiliar with the source material, can drop in and still enjoy what's happening and not be confused. Whereas I think, as you say, as much as I had fun with Rogue One, and maybe it's just that we went to the midnight, there's, there's reasons that I have fun with it, but there are moments in that where they have scenes that are just, they do one thing and they do it averagely. And you go, oh, that was a weird thing to drop in here. But fans are like, oh, it's the guys from the bar on Tatooine. But when I saw that, see, I was like, who was, what's happening? It, it annoys me because like, it's such a fucking nostalgia wank, stuff like that, where, you know, you watch, you watch that in Rogue One and it's like, what is the point? What is the point apart from a fan patting themselves on the back and saying, hey, hey guys, it's that thing from Star Wars that I recognize from that film that I like. Whereas like in Lemony Stickett, moments like that are like, oh, fuck, like, that actually has a deeper meaning. Like, not only do you get the thrill of recognition, but it actually has a deeper meaning that serves the themes and serves the narrative in a way that makes sense, which is, when you stop and think about it, very, very, very fucking clever. And so hard to do in a way that, like, so hard Absolutely. to do in a way that works. And it's, it's the thing that- In a way a that doesn't feel obtrusive. Yeah, as a writer, that's what you want to do. Like, you want to have those moments. Like, okay, so I was, we were talking about Sherlock in the car, before and one of the things that I, we talk, I was talking to Ben about this idea of so and we're not going to spoil season four but one of the biggest disappointments, I haven't seen it yeah one of the, <laughs> my biggest disappointments for season four was that they immediately in at the end of episode two I think or maybe it's the middle they re- they reveal what the cliffhanger of season three meant but it doesn't feel earned it doesn't feel rewarded it just again as Sherlock always seems to do it feels kind of cheap where you get the moment where you're like, oh, cool, I know what, you know, the east wind blows or whatever the phrase is. I know what that means now, but I still don't yeah. care because you've, 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 the, the show has spent way too long building up those seeds and then just immediately resolving them where they're like, okay. Also, I mean, you know, it just, it just kind of retrospectively makes the Abominable Bride special seem that much more completely useless. I didn't watch it because I knew it would be shit. Oh, it was, it was, and it, nothing that, look, I, fuck, we really shouldn't be going on the stand, but I mean, that's, it's fine. That's one that that's one that really irritated me because I, I went and saw that. I mean, because that was at the point where, like, I think Abominable Bride was the sort of the jumping the shark point for Sherlock because season three had a lot of issues, but a good season four would have been enough for me to forgive it. And when Abominable Bride came out, I was like, oh, it's a Sherlock episode that takes place outside of the main continuity, set entirely in Victorian London. Sweet, I'm cool to check this out. This will be fun. Like, it's, you know, a classical Victorian Sherlock murder mystery with um, Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman. But, like, all of Sherlock post-season two, it falls into the trap where instead of being just a standalone mystery story, every episode has to be, like, some bigger part of this huge overarching narrative involving Moriarty or what the fuck ever's going on. And... In that episode, like, when you get the halfway point of this, like, reasonably compelling Victorian ghost story murder mystery, suddenly it's like, there's this, there's this, and I say in inverted commas, twist, where it's like, oh, guess what? All of this was just happening in Sherlock's head <laughs> while he's trying to solve the mystery of how Moriarty came back from the dead in the present day. And it's like, uh, what the, f- oh, it's so annoying. Well, and, and you're looking at it being like, it's, and, and on top of that, the whole episode turns out to be Sherlock trying to figure out how Moriarty what? 
came back from the dead. And then at the end of the episode, when he solved the mystery, I guess the Victorian mystery in his mind palace with it's it's literally as dumb as it sounds. Wait, seriously, it's and in his mind palace the whole episode. Yep, the whole episode is in his Moffat mind palace. Think a mind palace is. Like, I don't know. He, a literal palace. Look, there's, <laughs> is he there's this whole there's this whole thing in that where like I, I guess the, the the episode the whole thing is that um there was a crime in the in the 1800s where a woman came back from the dead after shooting herself in the head to like cause havoc and Sherlock's trying to figure out how she did that by placing himself in in I guess the circumstances as the detective trying to solve it in his head and then there's like there's this awful scene like towards the end where like he ends up nonsensically having a fight with Moriarty in the 1800s and John Watson comes and saves him and Sherlock's like how did you know to save him John Watson's like I've written enough stories to know when I'm in one and it's like don't don't are you fucking oh you just and then (laughs) and then the end of the episode is like in the present day it's Sherlock being like to Watson oh I know what Moriarty's going to do next. I figured it out. And that's kind of the cliffhanger being like, but he hasn't. Because season season four starts without missing a beat. Exactly. It doesn't (laughs) make any fucking sense. The whole season is like, what's Moriarty doing? That's the whole season. Oh, it's just... Uh, I'm so glad I didn't watch it. So I enjoyed the series of Unfortunate Events. What yeah, about you guys? Look, sorry. Oh, how that good was the series of Unfortunate Events? <laughs> I'm sorry, we had to... We, uh, yeah, yeah, look, that's... To be honest, that's the first, like... Wait, we don't get to record our movie maintenance on that for, like, another week. Uh, yeah. So that's the first time I've actually got to <laughs> let out my feelings <laughs> about how yeah. fucking uh, dumb Sherlock is. You know what? I'll say this, though, before we move on. And I know that we have to move on, but I will say this before we move on. Uh, <laughs> it is one of the best, I think, filmed... And like visually produced shows, that's going. Cinematography uh, wait, is like, like Sherlock or unfortunate events. Sherlock. Well, also Both unfortunate events for different reasons. But I think the way that Sherlock does, I mean, as an example, in season four when he's like working out the piece of paper in the room, and they have that, like, just some of the cinematography they do is really creative and interesting. I still don't. Oh, visually, it's very sexy. It's very sexy visually, and I think that's Moffat's strong suit. He's like the J.J. Abrams of BBC. <laughs> well, I suppose. I mean, is it his strong suit though? Because I mean, he's strictly a writer. I mean, that seems I mean, like nothing to do just kind it. of more yeah. production value. I was trying to give him else. credit, Gabe. I was trying to help, but it's too late. I mean, like you can give Moffat credit. I mean, like Coupling is possibly the funniest sitcom of the last twenty years. That's not true. What but... about A Bigger Bang a Theory, the world's most popular <laughs> uh... show? Gabriel. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I'm just. I'm falling into silence. Like, at, did you like that. feel like the white noise like burst into your brain? You're like. <sighs> Oh, look, I felt like, I felt this fiery heat of rage kind of build up inside me. Then I was like, hang on, you're in another state. (laughs) I can't punch you right now. It's kind of like um, finding out that someone's cheating on you, but with, like, the Big Bang Theory. And you're like, "Mm, mm." Oh, God. Jeez. I mean, that's that's kind of the point at which you sort of kill yourself, isn't it? I mean, I, yeah. Yeah, there's no coming back from that. But what I was going to say about Unfortunate Events, to try and get us back on track, is um, I was saying to Ben when I was about halfway through that the way that they compose shots with models and real stuff, and the, the way that they do all that stuff is, like, real Wes Anderson cool. Isn't it just? It's so Wes like, Anderson, and like, in a fun way, not, like, a wanky way. Yeah, and it, does, it doesn't feel like it's ripping him off. I mean, a lot of people compared the movie to Tim Burton. The TV show is a lot more Wes Anderson in a way that works. Yeah. Like, little, like, cool shots, like, like the way the Poe house is, like, this tiny house. And, like, he's sitting these, against like, the fridge. And it yeah, never feels yeah. weird, because you're like, of course. Yeah. Like, I think that was the yeah. thing they did very well. Is they, I, You know what it was? is they did those awesome, cool shots and those cool visuals, but they never stopped to wank themselves over it. Like a classic... No, not at all. You know, like, and not to talk about Sherlock again, but it's going to happen. <laughs> so one of the things that Moffat, or one of the things that Doctor Who and Sherlock both do is they'll come up with a really awesome idea, and when it happens, they'll kind of, like, linger on it to let you know it's cool. Whereas, mm. unfortunate yeah, events was yeah. like, we did this cool thing, 
if you want to notice it, no worries. If you don't, that's fine too. Let's they don't they on. don't break the flow but of the cinematography yeah. to wank themselves off. They just they just That's when they when just fan service becomes annoying is when it becomes interfering to the plot. Yeah. Like you know, it's like, you know, I, I, this is like, I think it was Red Letter Media made this really good point about the AT-80s in Rogue One. And it was like, oh, you know, the AT-80s in Rogue One, like they, they were, it didn't make any sense for them to be there. They were just there because AT-80s are cool. And here are the big walking metal things that people like from previous films. In Empire Strikes Back, they weren't there because they were cool. They were there because they made sense in the context of a snow planet where you couldn't have, you know, vehicles moving along there. You needed something to walk and you get through the snow. You can drive a fucking like, Jeep. And... Yeah, and it's the same thing where it's like, you know, it's the things that are cool are not cool because the filmmakers are, like, pointing at them being like, hey, look how cool this is, which is what all of Latter-day Doctor Who has done and mm-hmm. all of, sort of, Sherlock has done the last two seasons. It's when they just are because it's just part of it and it's effortless and it's confident and it's like, hey, we're not going to linger on this because we're reasonably confident that we will have something just as cool, if not cooler, in the very next scene. And that, because and that's, I mean, everything we're doing is good. And when that happens, you like, it is so joyous to watch. Like that, there's a moment, and I, there's, again, Sherlock, I'm going to do it, and then I'll talk about unfortunate events again, but there's a moment in Sherlock season four where, and it's that scene in the street where he's talking to the woman whose case he's taking, and he's deciding how he knew where she hung the piece of paper, and he walks around, and he's moving, like, the, he, like, creates a window and creates a, corkboard and he like does all this stuff and it's filmed in such a beautiful way and i was like wow that scene was gorgeous and it was well written and like unfortunate events of so many of those the scene where they um uh they're in it's in the wide window episode and they're in the restaurant and the waiter like the it's what's the restaurant called i've i it's on the tip of my uh, the anxious clown. anxious clown and he's like yeah he's like i hope no one's allergic to anything and then uh olaf and uh, uh, there aren't. They keep talking the whole time, and they're talking, uh, talking, Olaf talking. Olaf and Poe, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's right, Olaf and Poe. They're yeah. talking, talking, talking the whole time while this waiter is like, "I hope no one's allergic to anything. That would be a shame." And the kids are like, "What the fuck?" Is <laughs> and they kind of they, yeah. they they do this round. I can't think of what it's called, but it's where they rotate the shot around the table until it's on the clown's face, and then it slowly pans in as he's like, "I hope you're not allergic to anything." And then Violet's like, "Oh." We're allergic to mints. And he's like, good, good. And then he like fades away and they keep talking. And that scene was so seamlessly done and so enjoyable to watch that I was just like, oh, like I didn't even notice it at the time because it felt so natural and so enjoyable. But when it was but done, also, I was like, wow. But also there was, a, there was this beautiful subtext to it. Like when he comes back with the mints and obviously so they can get out of there. And Violet has just said, we're allergic to mints. And it ties into one of like, the biggest themes of the series, which is that like adults don't pay attention to kids. Yeah. Yeah. And po- Mr. Poe never once looks at the mints and says, hang on, you can't have those because you're allergic, even though Violet literally seconds earlier has said, we're allergic to mints. Olaf doesn't pay attention. Poe doesn't pay attention. No one does. Because they don't, they don't care. And the only people that do and- are within that sphere of the organization. Yes. You know, and, and I think that's like that's why... This, I think that's why the series is so magnetic as a kid, is that so, there are adults that pay attention to kids and genuinely care about them. Yeah, and that's, it's, and I mean, yeah, that, that comes kind of back to what we were saying before, where it's like, what's so beautiful about the series is like, even in moments like that, that are really well constructed and really good, even then there's like a clever subtext operating beneath it. Mm. And and I think- And like a meaning to all of it. And, and doing that multi-purpose storytelling is what it's all about. Because at the end of the day, if you have a good script- and you have these scenes in a TV show where it's well set out, it's well directed, it's got a beautiful aesthetic, the acting is well done, the timing is perfect, and ultimately what you get is this show that 
maybe, you know, maybe Unfortunate Events isn't going to be, like, a classic that everyone is talking about. You know, in 15 years, no one's going to be like, bring back Unfortunate Events. People in 15 years will still be talking about bring back Firefly or whatever. I no think people gonna are going to be... be able, I don't think people will be like, bring back Unfortunate Events because this is basically a definitive version of it. But that's that's yeah, what I mean. And, it, it, it is so complete yeah. in, in, in every sense that it could be that no one is well, going to Well, you won't need around. to yeah, yeah, because... We, well, because also, like, I, I mean, they're already making a second season. They've oh, they yeah, pretty much course. confirmed that there's only going to be three seasons. Right. So, you know, it's it has every chance of, like, finishing its story. And and also, like, I mean, because I think I read an interview where they were saying, oh, how many seasons you can you get out of it? And Barry Sonnenfeld was like, look, you know, the kids are going to grow up. We don't want to film them when they're too old. We want to make three seasons. That'll cover all of the books. And then we're going to see what else we can do, which to me implies a cheeky all the wrong questions oh, season, God. which is going to be just <laughs> fine by me. Right. If they did that, I would be as happy as a pig. Oh, imagine, life. imagine if they did that, like as their season four, as like Lemony Snicket's all the wrong questions. So would you have but, like young, did it as like a like a bonus oh, I mean, you'd have to cast a kid. Yeah. But like, yeah. if they did it like in black and white noir, <laughs> oh, like, that like that would be like the whole, super risky. Oh, but if it, it's oh, a Netflix series, so they oh, could so they could just go and if do it. anybody could roll the dice and do that, it'd be Netflix. Yeah. If you had to cast someone as young Snicket, who would you pick, Gabe? Oh, but like I can't think of anything because he's thirteen. I don't really know any thirteen-year-old actors. Yeah, who... He also has to look like. What's well, his name? not necessarily because uh... Patrick is like a built-ass man. Yeah. I mean, you would have to go. With, uh, see, my instinct is to go with who's the new Spider-Man kid. Oh, uh, Tom Holland? Holland. Is that right? Yeah. Is that right? You want like a Tom Holland who's yeah. a bit grittier and a bit like, like spunkier. I don't know. I don't know. We haven't seen much of him, but like someone like that, who's kind of like a newer person who isn't like a character actor or like a, you know, like a young rising star. You want someone who's going to just do a good job of it and then put it in the bucket yeah. and be like, great, I did a good job. Move on with my life. Fuck, I'd love to see that. <laughs> but I mean, like that's that, the beauty of it is like, if unfortunate events has been the success people think it is, and if it continues to be a success, things like that are possible. Like things like, okay, the, I guess the ostensible fourth season of the show could just be a one-season crack at a prequel set 30 years earlier, which is a noir detective story as opposed to, like, a gothic fantasy story. I mean, how fucking cool would and that be? How have, daring would that oh, be? And you could still have Patrick narrate the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, if you wanted, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You could. you could keep the same narrative yeah. structure if that was something the studio wanted. Oh, this something now I'm yeah. just excited about what they could do with that. But, like, I think that's probably a great place to end because now we're basically just talking about how much we love unfortunate <laughs> events, which is what we wanted to do in the end. Which we, you know, haven't been talking about for an hour Look, or anything. No, but, we, drove, yeah. we drove to Sherlock, we drove to Doctor Who, we drove to the film, and we eventually parked our car back at the TV show. So it feels like a, probably a natural place to end before things Absolutely. get too out of hand. Um, look, I want to, th- uh, as always, thank you for uh, dropping by and, and jumping on our show. We always love having you. That sounded way too No, sensitive. thanks for having me, man. Like, yeah, it was awesome. Absolute pleasure. Um, we look forward to, obviously, obviously, you know, I'll be down in the future, there'll be more stuff with us and... This isn't the last we'll hear of Gabriel Bergmosa. Uh, if you want to listen to Movie Maintenance, you can find it on iTunes if you just look up Movie Maintenance. You guys have some beautiful new art as well, cover art. It looks awesome. Yes, we do. It's fantastic. It's really sexy. Um, and the jokes in it are like real subtle but real nice. There's our Jaws joke that's amazing, um, yep. which I love. Uh, you can find that on iTunes. Also on iTunes, if you just type in Boone Shepard, that'll come up with the audiobook, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Yep. Uh, so you can find that with, as well. Incomplete with all my silly voices. Yeah, doing all of the lovely, oh, that's ridiculous beautiful. voices. Yeah, he does all of them. It's great. <laughs> there's like Scottish people, there's Americans, there's British oh, people. By the way, um, we're, we're prepping to do the audiobook recording for the second one. Oh, it, uh, so are we going to hear will... you do like an Elvis voice? I do an Elvis oh, voice. Oh, 
I will do an Elvis Ooh, voice. Oh, it's brutal. That is um, tough. To so, Anne's, 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 you didn't hear it from me except for the fact that you did. Ooh. Hunter S. Thompson as well. Ooh. So, it's kind of sexy. Can prepare we, yourself. Can we, uh, can we end with, um, can you give us a, a quick drop of the Elvis voice? I know that it's. No, I haven't, I haven't practiced it, it yet. Oh. Gonna, Dave, you're breaking my I'm heart. Not, That's we, we need I know, I know, but it's just more incentive to come back for the That's second good shepherd. So. Look, if you want to buy the book, you can go to belfortbooks. Is it .com.au or is it .com? Uh, I think it's just .com. If you Google Belfrog Books. Yeah, they'll probably come up. It'll, <laughs> it'll come up. And it'll be in the show notes anyway, but you can go there, you can buy the book. Yeah. Uh, you can buy the ebook. you can buy the audiobook, all that good stuff. Um, Gabe, what's, uh, where are you on Twitter? Where can we find you? Um, I'm at uh, Gobergmoser, so G-O-Bergmoser, which is spelt exactly how it sounds. Yep, that's, that's good, and it will be in the title of the episode as well. I assume yeah. your last name. Um, I'm at DCMIHitPie. I'm at Literal Citrus. And we'll see you guys next week. Hello, my name is Lemony Snicket, and once again I find myself in a dimly lit room talking to a complete stranger. The complete stranger is you, and the room belongs to Netflix, a company responsible for filming a series of unfortunate events. Under ordinary circumstances, this room would be buzzing with excitement and activity as directors, designers, stagehands, and indentured servants prepare for a dazzling season of top-notch entertainment. But the story of the Baudelaire orphans is so upsetting and so utterly unnerving. The entire crew is suffering from low morale, a phrase which here means currently under medical observation for melancholia, ennui, and acute wistfulness. Joy, joy, happiness, my fortune's about to change.